How's it feel, Niels? Uh, fantastic, I'm just scared. <laughs> what are you scared of, Niels? Falling <laughs> and shitting myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> we can cut this out. <laughs> I want to win. If I enter, I want to win. Yeah, well, we just need to train hard. Don't we? Let's do that. Yes. How many rooms have you broken? My name is Richard Thodek, and I'm a penny farthing rider. Welcome to the Velocino podcast. We're here with Richard Thoday. I am about to attempt to ride a penny farthing. So you are going to ride a penny farthing. I am going to ride a penny farthing. So what are the instructions, boss? What do I okay, need to be doing? Okay, so here we go. This is the, the, the big thing that's different. I mean, it looks different because it's got a big front wheel, obviously. But the biggest difference is that the, the wheel is attached to the handlebar directly. So when you push on that pedal, yep. it's going to push the steering round. Okay, so if you kick hard on the pedal, you're going to head off in a direction you have no intention of going into that hedge. Right? Okay. And it's a holly, so it'll hurt. Yeah, it's quite yeah. sharp. So, to start with, really, really gentle pressure on the pedals, just uh -huh. downwards if you can, almost no pressure at all. Right. Big wheel, so it'll roll really sweetly on this tarmac. It'll go for ages without you putting any pressure in. To start with, I'm going to hold the bike and I'm going to put you on a saddle and we'll okay. just do it like a seated start. Okay. Just take a very gentle one. Key to it is relaxing. Relax. If you can relax, it'll just flow like a normal bike. How cool. big is the wheel? So the, wheel, the wheel on this one is a 52 inch diameter. So, <laughs> where's it coming? It's coming up to what? Between your elbow and your shoulder, isn't it? That sort of height. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people understand the scale of it. It's like my yeah. height. Uh, back wheel is 18 inches. All right, so if I hold this for you. Sure. Two steps at the back. Yep. Nice and smooth as you climb up. Don't throw yourself suddenly. <laughs> and then one foot on. Yeah, that's, that's fine. It, it's very comfortable. To, well, for an hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> Small inputs make quite a big difference. They do to start with, yeah. Okay. And it's, it's um, your brain's got to learn some reprogramming, kind yeah. of rebalancing forces, which will do really quickly. Yeah. Um, so we'll just move, move, we'll move out into the away from the holly bush. Yeah. All right. So All right. same thing again. Really gentle pressure. Yeah. Nice and relaxed. Yeah. Absolutely. I tell you what, the, apart normal. from the kind of the, the, the getting on it and the getting off, the rest of it once you're on there it just feels actually quite natural. It's, it's a really nice thing to ride. Yeah, it's quite it's quite nice watching people learn to ride it. Yeah, because almost straight away invariably you get some big kind of fixed grin on people's <laughs> yeah, faces yeah, as yeah. soon as they get rolling. <laughs> it's just such a different thing, and it's hard to describe that sensation, isn't it? Yeah. Without actually getting on and trying it. The only thing I can liken it to is that first moment when you ride a bike for the first time. Exactly. That like real that. sense yes. of freedom and yeah. kind of excitement. It's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I encourage. I would recommend everybody to have a go at this. It's brilliant. All right, form a cube. It's lovely. It's brilliant. Do you want to have a go? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think you need to have a go. To yeah, yeah. Understand. You, to understand it. Totally. Okay. Niels, your first child is on its way. If you don't make it out of this situation, <laughs> are there any words of wisdom you'd like me to pass on to your future baby Chino? Yeah, I'm sorry, but there won't be a second child then. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've removed the chance of siblings. Right. Go on then, mate. Niels is up. It looks like he's trying to mate with it at the moment, <laughs> but I think he's in. He's okay, in. So if you hold on the outside of the bars on the drops, that's a nice relaxed position. He's riding along. Excellent. <laughs> he's now taking it off road. Uh, we're now into sorry, cyclocross, sorry. cyclocross, <laughs> penny farthing. I think 
is going well. There, there was a track here, but uh, Niels never liked to be contained within the box. How's it feel, Niels? Uh, fantastic, I'm just scared. <laughs> what are you scared of, Niels? Falling <laughs> and shitting myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> we can cut this out. <laughs> I've got the mic. Got right, we got it. Oh. And we stopped. Oh my goodness, I think I have really hard nipples. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Well, Richard, thank you for this, because so far we've now obviously made, had a massive insight into what it's like to actually ride one of these things. Uh, it's, it's so difficult to explain without actually getting on it and having it, feeling it. Yeah, you, you just... You don't understand what it, what it is. It's so hard to explain to somebody else, I think, if you're trying to explain explain this uh, like this experience. I think I, I didn't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, we'll... Um, Let's head back and uh, we'll start, we'll find somewhere quiet for us to carry on with our interview and have a chat. Okay. Hello everybody and welcome to the Bellicino podcast. This week we are joined by Richard Thode, penny farthing rider extraordinaire, having just achieved the world record for the Land's End to John O'Groats uh, just, just over a month ago, wasn't it Richard? It was just over a month ago, yeah. Just over a month ago. So well, first of all, welcome to... The podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you both. Now, just to reveal to everybody, you have just trained Niels and I in penny farthing riding. Yes, you're now both qualified penny farthing riders. <laughs> no, always. <laughs> Except we've not done the getting and not getting on and getting off bit yet. That yeah, starts to start to get a bit tricky. Apart from the motor part of getting on and yeah. getting off, yeah. you've, you've helped us out. So, first of all, thank you so much for that. Okay. So, what do you think to it? First, first reactions to it. I was really scared. Yeah. I was really, really scared. And you could see that when you first started riding, couldn't you? Because the bike wouldn't hold a straight line. It was all tense. And yeah, my whole upper body was like tense. Like I didn't breathe. I was just, I was really scared. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> like... it, was, it was hilarious to watch. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get any photos of people to see in the future, but the white of Neil's eyes yeah. as he was, he yeah. was climbing up yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I, have to, I absolutely loved it. Big broad grin on your face straight away. Was, I, can't, I still can't get the smile off my face thinking about it. As you were saying, it's like it's like when you watch a, a kid ride a bike for the first time on yeah. their own. It's that same feeling. It, it was. It was like that sense of freedom when when I heard those magical words, "I've let go." <laughs> it was like I'm doing it. This is brilliant. Well, that's the way I almost checked myself. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> but this, the sense for achievement that I had afterwards was really like, yeah. amazing. I yeah. really felt like, wow, I've done that. Like, yeah. Because we were talking about it on our way here and I was, I, I thought like, there's no way that we're going to do it because I tried a unicycle before and didn't work. Yeah, they're the devil's so, work. They're yeah. really difficult to ride. Yeah. 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 It's got a stabilizer with plenty of farming. It's, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. so much easier. It is, I mean, genuinely, there are, there are actually really easy bikes to ride. Um, I think there must be a lot of centrifugal force, sorry, centripetal yeah. force for scientists from that big wheel. So even at really, really low speed, they just balance beautifully that if was, you're relaxed. Yeah, and that was the thing I was really surprised about is actually how slow I was going, and yet it still actually felt pretty, pretty solid, pretty sturdy, yeah, uh, yeah. pretty comfortable. So, so people think uh, like penny farthing, the general public conception, until you see one or experience one or watch somebody riding one properly, is it's, it's like a circus bike or a clown's bike. You know, like a joke thing, but actually they're really, really competent, you know, able machines. You can ride through, I love riding through town and city traffic, you know, riding in London, you know, weaving in and out of traffic. And it's not difficult at all, as long as you're watching everything, you know what's going on. Yeah. Do people give you sort of a, a more room, because obviously you do, you do normal cycling as well, so do people give you more room when you're Yeah, they do, they do. 
I shouldn't share this secret because everybody will start writing funny farthings and then it'll, it'll spoil it. <laughs> but no, car drivers, I think partly because they're not sure whether it's safe or not. Um, yeah. They kind of give you a wide berth it's and they'll wave you through roundabouts and junctions and what have you. And uh, no, it makes, makes striking. And you see people smiling and they're waving at you. And yeah. The scary bit is people trying to take photographs of you while they're driving. And I've watched, really? cars, I've watched cars come past and somebody rubbernecks with an iPhone. So they're watching you and they're not watching the road and the car drifts over to the side of the road with something oh, coming out of Oh, that's scary. In fact, there's, there's a wonderful rider, um, a guy called Geoff Summerfield, who's ridden around the world uh, one and a half times. And uh, he sent me a photograph from somewhere in America, I think, with a car on its roof in the road. And he said, that was somebody taking a photograph of me. Just I went a bit wrong. So I'm, I'm, I, I hope it never happens, but you know, just, yeah. just kind of almost close my eyes some days, thinking, oh, that's too close. Because <laughs> so far over this of the road to give me some room. You know. Well, it's, it really is a, I don't know, a spectacle isn't quite the right uh, phrase, I don't think. But we were stood in that park. And before we'd even stepped foot in the park, there were people stopping and saying, can I have a photo with you? There yeah. were kids coming up, everyone's asking you questions about how to get on, how to get off, which obviously, as you've revealed to us, is probably the number one question you get about it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a brilliant way to, to meet people riding that. It's oh. one that, another pony farm riders have said the same thing to me. One of the joys of riding one is the pleasure it gives other people. You see it, people driving past, but then you... You ride through a park or in a town, and people want to talk to you about it, and then then they want to talk to you about other things, and you kind of you just you meet people in life that you just wouldn't meet normally. Yeah. Having done the end to end, I've stopped riding the penny farthing for a few weeks to give my hands a rest because they're suffering a bit. Uh, I went out for a ride on the trail recently, and I, and I was on a regular safety bicycle, and uh, we've been riding for a few miles, and my wife said, "This is really boring, isn't it?" Because nobody's stopping to talk to us today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it draws so much attention. Do you consider yourself like a special character of doing this? Because I assume not everybody feels comfortable with getting all this attention. It's true, yeah. No, there's this friend of mine who has a penny farthing. I sold him the first one I made and uh, he doesn't enjoy the attention so much. And he's got the wrong bike. You know, yeah. it's, it's part of it. You've got to go with it. You can't, you know. Yeah. Because people want to know about it, so you've got to share it with them. So it's, uh, it's a kind of special thing. It was, and I have to, we were there just for just a few minutes, and I mentioned to Niels that I know the youth of today, you know, have ways of meeting people through an online way, and you know, Tinder and all these sorts of things. Everybody out there, get yourself a penny farthing. Everybody wants to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It breaks down. It breaks. It breaks down all the barriers as well, because anybody will come and talk to you. Yeah. You know, um, folks I ride with, you know, there's a yeah. huge cross-section of society there, you know, yeah. chief solicitor for the City of London to a, a welder, you know, and we're all the same, yeah. you know? but that's true of cycling generally, I suppose. Indeed. But uh, get on a penny farthing, take it down the park, and there'll uh, be the lads on the, on the skate run, well, can I have a go? Yeah, can I have a go? Or, you know. Yeah, you've got to be willing to. Gentlemen such as yourselves, whoever, you know, everyone every, <laughs> seems to be genuinely interested. Yeah. What was it about the penny farthing that first got you interested? Because it it's not just an interest, it's not just a curiosity, it's, it's a passion. I don't know. I'll be honest, I don't know. There's something deep down. I can remember when I was a, a teenager, maybe I was 13, 14, saw a photograph of a penny farthing in The Guardian. Put a jam jar on the bookshelf from a bedroom labelled Richard's Penny Farthing Fund and started putting like no. coins in there, you know. Yeah, put in my pocket money there. I'm going to save up. I'm going to buy one of those penny farthings. I don't know why, I was just, just really struck by it. And I, I didn't ride bikes at the time either. So I started putting the money in the jar. And of course, before too long, I mean, 
There wasn't that much in there. I was never going to achieve a penny falling with that. So before long, it got spent on, on beer or cigarettes or something once, <laughs> once I grew up a little bit. So that, that kind of thought disappeared out the window and then, uh, yeah, I, uh, I got distracted by other things in life. But that little seed was sown by that photograph and that's the first I remember of it. When we talk about penny farthing, what is it that defines something to be a penny farthing? You know, has the front wheel got to be bigger than the back wheel by a certain amount or is there, are there different types of penny farthing? Is there a senior one and a junior one? There's a debate raging at the moment in the penny farthing world. Somebody's trying to write or various people are discussing a set of regulations and rules for penny farthing racing because it's, it's kind of having a resurgence the last few years. And so people are debating what defines a penny farthing. Now, there are a set of rules for... There's a race in Evandale, um, and they've been racing there for like 30 years. They have really strong riders there. And they've got a very strict set of rules. But the basic premise is large front wheel, direct drive, so no free wheel, no gears, and a small back wheel, solid tyres. It has to be solid tyres. doesn't have to be, but that's kind of become one of the defining features of it for the racing guys yeah the first one I made had a Brompton front wheel with a back wheel because I was because I scavenging bits and making one you know out of what I could manage so yeah it had a, it had a, a pneumatic back wheel and I dared to put a hydraulic um, rim, Magura rim brake on it at the time as well and I kind of did <laughs> a lot of tutting from one to two five guys but yeah the basic premise is big front wheel small back wheel direct drive solid tyres but if you have a um, solid tyre you won't get a puncture right which is a good thing it's great yeah but you get Hand pain, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, solid tyre. There's quite a lot of vibration, and there's no suspension. There's no. There's no giving the thing at all, really. I was just thinking about that moment. If you did have like a pneumatic tyre with air in it, and you get that that puncture, and you've got to change that inner tube. I mean, my inner tube changing is pretty slow at the best of times. <laughs> I I cannot imagine. I mean, would the inner tube even fit in your jersey pocket? I mean. <laughs> you, know, you have to wrap it like twice around your waist or something like that. And it, I suppose there's so many problems. Yeah, you'd be tubeless, wouldn't you? Be tubeless, surely. Yeah, you'd go tubeless. Yeah, of course, course you would. Of course, yeah. Of course. yeah. There were, but there were uh, original penny farthings which had pneumatic tyres. I saw one recently with some nice Dugas tubs on. You know, as you would have. I think. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm not a penny farthing enthusiast in terms of the history of the development of bicycles. I'm not. I'm not. Um, involved in that world a lot of people are I, I like riding them uh, and racing them so uh, the bikes I ride are, are modern bikes that are as an original but reliable and, and safe to ride and very capable but I believe there were, there were some with pneumatic tyres and you said you built your own one to begin so what was your yeah. story of building and owning your own one Okay, so let's just—I'll explain you who I am to start with, all because I just just so, so people understand, I'm I'm a very average, very middle-aged club rider. Um, nothing particularly special at all. I'm not a not a professional athlete. Uh, I'm not specially trained. I just like riding bikes. I've always had bikes around, and anything with two wheels, from a, a chopper to a, a BMW motorbike, I'll have a go on it. You know, get me on it. Um, and uh, as I said, there's this little thing in the back of my head, having seen a penny farthing years back. I thought, yeah. Yeah, one day I'll have a go on. And uh, I'd heard about a race which happens in Cheshire, Nutsford, only every 10 years. And uh, it's a big penny farthing race. And I heard mention of it, and uh, nobody seemed to quite know where or when this thing happened. And then I caught mention one night, late one night, on, a, on an internet forum that uh, the race was coming up, and this is where to get your entry forms and get in there quick, because they'll go. So I, there and then I entered, like, on a whim. Just... Did you, at this point, had you actually ever ridden a penny farthing? No. <laughs> But no, this is, this is my thinking. Go with us. Go with us. I was oh, well, this, is, this is nine years ago. So I was about forty-five. All right, 
So I'm thinking, it's happening now, the next edition is in 10 years, I'll be 55. I'm going to be too old to ride a bike properly, especially yeah. a penny flag when I'm 55. I'm 55 now. How <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. wrong? But you know, you think, God, I'm going to be so old then, I'll be so old. So I'll do it now. Because if I don't do it now, I probably never will. So I entered and then thought, okay, now I need to find a penny farthing and I need to learn how to ride it. So I started asking around and a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, a gentleman who's, who's got a couple of old penny farthings and he races like hill climb, hill climb cars, you know, old vintage cars and he, and he's got, he's got, some people have these old bikes and they don't want to race them. And I can understand because 130 year old bike, they get a bit fragile. It's kind of a bit unkind in some ways to race them. But this, this guy's got this, this theory of, well, they're there to be used, use them and then if they break, get them fixed. So he very kindly lent me an original 1878 Timberlake, completely original bike, apart from, and this is one that I've had a lot of thoughts about you know, that, that era mm. compared with now. And this is, a, this is kind of high technology at the time, bicycle. And I borrow it 130 years later, and it's probably a new, well, it has had a new set of tyres, maybe two new sets of tyres. But apart from that, that's it. And you can get on it and you can ride it. Now, get a bike out of your garage in your mind now, project it to 130 years in the future, will that still be, will that, will that, with no servicing at all, apart from a drop of oil and a new set of tyres, will that still be working now? That's, that quite is, sta- that's quite staggering, isn't that it, really? It is staggering to consider that, yeah. that that technology was built so robust in the first place, it can still ride. Yeah, but there's a big range of technology at the time. There were so many people making them, and such rapid development through different technological ideas they were trying, um, that, you know, they range from something that is kind of the engineering of a clockmaker's quality, you know, beautiful, beautiful engineering, through to the local blacksmiths saying, oh, I'll knock you one of those up, mate. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and that was a range of bikes, you know, there's a huge range in terms of weight, um, quality of build. So you did this race with mm. borrowed bike. Yes. And obviously... The race was, for me, as scary as you're riding the park today. Um, I had no idea that you'd bank over in corners on a penny farthing. Yeah. Did you win? Did I win? No, I, I pretty much came last. Um, with, okay. You can ride solo <laughs> or in teams, like, yeah. like um, the sort of revolve mind. Yeah. We put a team in, a team of four riders. And uh, we had two penny farthings and we pretty much killed both of them during the race. Um, <laughs> fixed them afterwards. Uh, one of the riders was riding his own bike, the tyre came off and it had a really nasty crash and he was quite badly beaten up. Uh, we lost a transponder off the bike for quite a large part of the race, we didn't realise. So, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a shambles, frankly. We, we finished limping along on one bike, which for every lap we had to put some more gaffer tape around the rim to hold the tyre on because it wasn't staying on the rim. But we were determined to finish because the atmosphere was just overwhelming. Um, lovely park in Nutsford, beautiful sunny day. Riders from all over the world who were just scarily competent. Crowd of five, six thousand band playing music, you know, it was just, when do you get to ride in front of that many people and be appreciated? It was just stunning. So I went, I, I came away from that and uh, fixed the, the spokes on the bike that we'd broken and uh, returned it and thought, I want some more of that. That was, there's a lot to learn, having watched very competent riders like Joff, who's ridden around the world, so skillful, but looking at the pleasure it gives people both to ride them and to watch people ride them. Yeah. I need to do some more of this. So I came away and thought, well, I can't actually afford to have a look on eBay. <laughs> I, can't, I can't afford to buy a nice original Victorian uh, machine. And um, I've got some making skills. So I, I got a rim from Joff, who was building one or two at the time, and got some tubing from a local steel yard and borrowed a welder off a mate. And with my daughter's help, holding bits and pieces together, you know, tack welding them. That looks about right. Worked. This I was amazed. I remember taking it down to the park where you've just ridden that same strip of tarmac. No paint on it, raw bike, just finished welding the last bit. I was so excited down to the park, jumped on it and just rode a treat. I was so thrilled. Oh, amazing. That, that sense of, oh, it's really nice to ride. And I've just made it as well. And just from like looking at some photographs and I didn't know how wide, how wide, are we all that tall? How wide does your hub need to be? I don't know. 
And I kind of, oh God, no plans or measurements. You just think, well, that looks right, you know. Fork angle looks about right, you know, it probably is. We'll give it a whirl. This is in the tradition, the great British tradition of men in sheds. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) It is the, the, I've seen one of them, I reckon I can build it. Yeah, we can't. How hard can it be? (laughs) That's easy. easy. It's easy. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, you do have the skills set. I mean, you've got the welding skills, you've got the design skills, and you've, you've been building bespoke design stuff for many years. But yes. still, that yep. idea of that ingenuity that you can, you can crack it out and build it. And is that the bike that we rode today? No, the one, the, the one that I made, I kept for quite a while. I did ride quite a lot, but it was, uh, it was only a 50-inch wheel, which is a little bit small for me. And I wanted something with a bigger wheel. Man's bike for racing on, you know, bigger wheel. So I've got a bigger wheel. I've got a 56-inch the following year. Having raced that one, the first proper race, when I felt confident and capable because I'd practiced it a lot, we went down to the Smithfield Nocturne, which is a big inner city criterion race in London for proper riders with proper safety bikes that ride really fast. And names that you'll know, you know, proper professional riders, you know, it's a big yeah. deal, it's a big event, it's great. When you refer to a safety bike, it's a normal bicycle. I'm right? talking about a modern bike, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in inverted commas, a safety bike. Yeah, no, a modern, modern road bike. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so we yeah we, we got put in as a as a an event and uh, a racing this event and uh, again thrilling and all of a sudden you're riding in front of you know even more than five thousand people and you get to stand on a podium you know at the end with with cameras pointing at your stuff it's, it's really exciting <laughs> so yeah when I went bought bought a, a bigger rim and built a, a bigger bike to, to try and you know improve my my racing and get faster and uh, so the other one kind of languished a bit and in the end I sold it to a friend but we 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 put an event on in the park in Matlock where you're riding today a guy called Roger who runs unicycle.com, who make high-quality unicycles, came, they did some unicycle racing with us, and he'd never seen a penny farthing race before, and uh, he looked at it and said, that's, that's a unicycle, but with a bit added on the back end. You've not built it quite right, you should have used these bones, you should have done that and <laughs> In fact, can I take your fork design, can, can we manufacture it? So uh, the bike I'm right now is a production version of the prototype that I made all those years ago. I didn't realise it was a prototype at the time, but hey. <laughs> It was. So that's, that's really satisfying, you know, that I'm riding a proper version of, of my original. Just before I had a go, mm. just as, literally just before you were going to explain to me how to jump on, you, you revealed to me that someone had borrowed one and somebody had ridden it and then broken both their elbows. Yeah. This was your, I think this was your motivational speak. Oh, speech. I didn't get that. Did you get me? I didn't hear that. Should I tell you now? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I think originally told Niels that before we started, Niels would have gone just literally with a bit of puff of smoke and it would disappear off into the distance. They're easy to ride, yeah, guys, because you've just done it, haven't you? Yeah. So yeah, but they're really dangerous to ride fast. I was going to say no, they're dangerous to ride slow as well. I've hurt myself at walking speed falling. When you sat on the bike, uh, you sat over the front axle and you're leaning forwards a little bit against the bars. So you're almost on the point of balance. In fact, when you're racing flat out and you're leaning forwards, you know, really into it, yeah. you quite often see the back wheel kind of skipping off the floor. It's almost, okay. only just touching the floor. So you're really on the point of balance. So if anything goes wrong, the first thing that happens is you go head first over the front at speed. Yeah. And uh, just so people understand what that feels like. If you imagine yourself being held by your ankles with your head about eight foot off the floor, and some just let's go, and then they drop a load of scrap metal on top of it. That's kind of the effect it has, and that's just just a walking speed. <laughs> so we're laughing, but actually they're yeah. really dangerous things. And the safety bike was called a safety bike for a very good reason that yeah. a lot of people are having some really nasty accidents and killing themselves. So you got you, once you start riding them a lot, you got to take them really seriously. The challenge you took on, what was it that first got you thinking? Okay, I've, I've enjoyed my time on a penny farthing. I'm going to take it from Land's End to Jennifer. What was the what was the bit that got you? 
get interested in this particular channel. <laughs> so stupid now, doesn't it? Looking back on it, what a stupid idea. In fact, I sat down for an interview recently with somebody and their first question in the interview was, uh, so, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I am. Well, that's what I thought, actually, when, when, when I heard about you for the first time. We recorded one of our other, uh, other episodes and... Uh, Mike said something in the line of, um, somebody broke the world record. I was like, huh, really? Yeah, on a penny farthing. And I was like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, thinking back, I, I became aware of the record. Um, the, the record, so people understand it, was set by a 19-year-old in 1886. GP, George Pilkington Mills. And uh, people have tried to break it since, and nobody's managed to break it. So this record was set 133 years ago, before there was tarmac on the roads, in the heyday of the penny farthing. First came across mention of the record, again, before I'd ever written the penny farthing. And uh, like that photograph from The Guardian from when I was a teenager, it just lodged in the back of my mind. And um, I was involved with helping uh, a friend have a go at the end-to-end -end record on a modern bike, organising the crew for him, and uh, he was going with the Road Record Association um, to verify it. So I got the Road Record Association Handbook, Road Record Association Handbook, and in that it lists all the records. And one of the earliest records on the list is George's Penny Farthing record. And then in brackets it said, uh, this record is now locked or we will no longer accept you know, attempts on a penny farthing. Um, I can't remember the exact wording, but uh, bearing in mind I'd never written one, I thought, oh, that's interesting. A, did he really write that distance? at that time on a penny farthing, is that, yeah. is that actually possible? And people have questioned me on it, is that a genuine record, did that really happen? So A, is it possible? And B, if it is, how come nobody's managed to do better on a penny farthing, given that people have tried? And it stuck in my mind, and so when I started riding penny farthings, there's a little ticking time bomb in the back of my head. <laughs> and I started to improve, and, and the riding I was doing was, was short distance stuff, hour or two, riding with friends, doing the, the odd club time trial, um, and Criterion Racing, which is great fun, you know, bunch race, you get 30 of you clattering around the kilometre circuit with some tight bends, it's just really exciting. But I started doing longer rides and this, this, this thought about this record was sitting in the back of my mind thinking, I wonder if it's possible. And the more I thought about it, the more I started doing rides with that in mind in the back of my head thinking, is it possible? And I've been thinking about it for quite a long time. And then um, a rider called Rich Smith, who, he's not really a penny farthing rider, he's, he's an endurance runner. Um, and uh, three years ago, he had, he, he had a go at it, to end record, I suddenly Thing like this guy's gonna have a got the end to end record on Penny Farthing. And I sort of thought, oh, I wish I'd done it. I wish I'd done it. And now he's, he's doing it, you know. He's beating me to it. Oh, got it. Never mind, that's good. I'll follow this. So I followed his attempt and uh, he put together a really interesting schedule that looked okay, that makes sense. Uh, and he set off on his attempt. But he, he only bought the Penny Farthing to have a go at the record. So he'd been riding it for a handful of months. Um, so it was worried about riding in busy traffic, not that confident, and yeah, he got through a couple of days of it and then, and then jacked in. He got his sleeping pattern on. I had a conversation with him before uh, my attempt, having done quite a lot of training and prep to find out what went wrong with his attempt, and uh, it was really interesting that the things that went wrong for him, we'd already sorted out and taken care of in, in, in my attempt. What were the, the kind of, what was the advice he gave? Okay, so the things, the, the things that went wrong for him were his lack of confidence in traffic, so he thought, right, busiest time of day, middle of the afternoon, rush hour traffic, and there's a lot of busy stuff to do on the end-to-end -end on a penny farthing. You know, some mm. really nasty stuff to negotiate. So, right, if I sleep in the afternoon, when it's busy, and ride in the middle of the night, flip me riding down its head. Um, so I thought, right, that's, that's a really good idea. Ride at night. I like that. And uh, 
So when I found him up afterwards, he said, no, it was awful, it was an awful idea. He said, I couldn't sleep in the afternoon. I did not, I, I had not trained himself to do it, and B, the environment he was trying to sleep in, in the vehicle, it was too noisy, weather parked up. Couldn't sleep, uh, and then he was struggling with riding late the next night, because it's the middle of the night and he'd not slept. So the next day he was completely shattered, and he just couldn't sort his sleeping pattern out. But I had followed this idea before I talked to him, I thought, this is a great plan. And then I started to talk to one or two folks. I talked to a sports psychologist at Derby University who did some great work helping me. And because I know a lot of this is like head stuff you know, with an attempt like this. It's what's going on in your mind that can stop you. So he had some really good sessions with me. And he asked me about the plan. And straight away he said, do not try and ride through the night. And he started quoting all his papers and reading. He was an endurance runner. He'd done some big running stuff like the length of Ireland and all sorts. And he'd done a lot of research on sleep deprivation in sports. And he showed me that if you lose like an hour off your normal sleep pattern, it will have this so much effect. If you lose two hours, it'll have this much more. And it just amplifies massively. Keep as close to your normal sleep patterns as you can. So when I spoke to Rich and he said this, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, that's what you said, and that's what he said, and that's what I'm going with. You know, I'm going. So in the end, we kept sleep patterns as near to normal as possible. So I was riding through till 10 in the evening, trying to get to bed within half an hour. It didn't work, and I wasn't sleeping terribly well because I was in a lot of discomfort. And then uh, getting up at um, quarter past five and on the bike at six. So it's a kind of, you know, like a, a working day almost, you know, up at yeah. 6.30 normally. Um, so uh, they went, and the other thing that went wrong for him was didn't do a test crew with the crew. So he got sport crew, but he didn't go and do a test run. We'd so, already so, none, work- so none of his crew that were used to going with somebody who'd got a penny farthing? As I understand it, yes. Um, right. So when they got out on the road, it, it took them a while to get established with what was going on. And I think the same thing happened with Mel Nichols, who broke the women's hand-cranked trike record recently end-to-end, again with a new crew, and they set out. And I think the first day or two, she, she found them very difficult with the crew because they didn't know each other and they hadn't done a test run. But when I spoke to Rich Smith, um, we'd already done a crew test. We'd done a, like a full-day cycle and a bit more, so I'd done a full day riding on the course with some big climbs, uh, with the support crew feeding me and putting me to bed and getting me up the next morning and cracking off again, yeah. and it worked great. So I, that gave me a lot of confidence that he said, yes, if I put those things right, this is doable. I think this is doable. Yeah. It was what he said to me, so that gave me a lot of confidence. And uh, about your support crew, what was the crew made up of? Different events have different sized crews. Was it somebody in just one person in a car? Was it people running behind you? How did you structure well, the, the crew? The record was, is hopefully being verified by Guinness. So they gave me a quite strict set of rules. Um, so what was in your support crew? So in support crew, crew yeah. So, uh, well, modern end-to-end. I mean, Michael Broadus broke the record mm-hmm. recently. Um, and his, his, his ride would be start riding at Land's End and you ride to John O'Groats and you finish and you just ride pretty much flat out. You might have a, a cat nap if you really need it in a few minutes, but that's it. So a support crew riding for pretty much two days, a support crew can manage on bits of sleep wrapped in the back of a vehicle if you're not driving and swapping over and the vehicles keep moving with you, which uh, minimises what you need really. You need a vehicle for an official observer to follow you to see you all the time. And that's it. But when you're looking at five days, potentially, or five days plus, if my record attempt had gone wrong and I'd carried on riding for seven, eight days, I had no idea what was going to happen. I was thinking, you can't ask a crew, particularly if I decide that I'm going to have to ride really long days to try and keep pace with the record, if there's a headwind, for example, you can't ask them to drive a vehicle for 20 hours, but before they start driving, they get me up and feeding me, and then at the end of the day, yeah. they're put, feeding me and putting me to bed, and then going to sleep themselves. That's not sustainable. It's not safe. It's not fair on them. Uh, we broke it down to having two support vehicles. So one to do a morning shift, one to do an afternoon shift. And so once they were off duty, they could then go and feed, wash, sleep, get ready for the next day. Work really well. And you've got the contingency for a vehicle breaking down, which could easily happen. And you've got one vehicle as the main support vehicle and it breaks down, end of record attempt. 
I'm, I was determined that this was it. I was going to have one go at it and do it really, really well, you know, rather than try it and then fail and come back. I'm not doing that. I'm, yeah, I can't do it. So we've got two, motor, two small motorhomes. Um, they were leapfrogging me, went on duty, leapfrogging me, meeting me every hour. So I didn't have a vehicle sat with me, following me. Mm. And then another vehicle with the crew who were collecting evidence for Guinness. Did you crunch numbers before? Did you know, like, I don't know if this is even possible, but did you calculate how many watts you have to Do you know what? I sat down with, with Lee Trimmers quite early on after I decided to have a go at this. Um, Lee Trimmers lives just around the corner. He holds the, he set the record for uh, Trans-Europe, West to East. Yes. There's some kind of club of, of you guys, I can see. When, when I find out what this club is, <laughs> I'm going to run away from it <laughs> before they drag me into something else. No, there should be there should be enough, uh, a club for us guys to get together and talk nerdy stuff and look at graphs and things. It'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Except I haven't got any graphs. So Lee Timmons came round. <laughs> Bless him. He, he came round because he lives not far away from me, and, I, and I, I heard about him by chance. And he came round. He said, let, let me come round and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll have a chat and I'll talk about what I've learned. And he came on, he spent the whole day with me. I got so much information to share, and he, he did a lot of work with Derby University with the sports guys and a lot of gym work. And his graphs were amazing, all his power data and uh, nutritional data and, and this and the other. He was really excited about seeing my graphs when my graphs come. I'll confess, Lee, there are no graphs, I never did have a graph. <laughs> the idea, well, one of the things that I was really curious about was GP Mill set his record. He got on a bike. I rode it around on John Groats with some help from some riders from clubs, and that's pretty much it. And he'd stop and eat en route when people provided food for him. And it was the height of technology at the time, but it was pretty raw, you know. They'd just go out and ride the bike really hard, really, really hard. And he was a stunning rider. And I was thinking, all the stuff we've got at our fingertips now, all the, all the information we've got, all the, all the sports nutrition, we've got sports clothing, we've got LED lights, we've got coaches, we've got uh, mobile phones, we've got sat nav, we've got... Uh, musical motivation there's so much stuff that we've got now what difference does that make you know, yeah. stuff, so I'm going to use whatever I can while still riding a penny farthing that is like a GP Mills yeah. style penny farthing and did you have some kind of estimation beforehand that you know that you knew okay I can do X amount of kilometers a day yeah well it kind of evolved during the training nine, nine months I started the, the, the basic premise to start with was something along the lines of right if I could average 10 miles an hour for 20 hours for five days that'd be easy Easy. <laughs> That'd be easy. easy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not talking about the pedaling bit, I'm talking about the schedule. <laughs> it looks so much easier when it's written on Excel, doesn't it? Oh, that's doable. Easy. But from the 24 hour racing, which is in the past, I know, you know, every time you stop, those little chunks of time really rack up so fast. Yeah. So fast. And you don't realize it's happening. Um, so you need to add on a bit of average speed for that. So actually, you've got to ride quite a bit faster. So it kind of evolved. In the end, I came up with a figure of 13 miles an hour average for riding, right. which all my training was kind of aiming at, managing to achieve that comfortably, which which I got to. But then you, you've got to add on all that um, faff time you were talking about in your Indeed. podcast with him. You know, that, that faff time can get so out of control. So you could, that's that's the biggest thing to factor in. I mean, just just for those that don't know, the first part of Sunday morning ride when, when, that you're, you're waiting for it's for Niels to turn up. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's normally the first bit. Yeah, uh, it's, right. not, it's not buffer time. time; it's a buffer time. <clears throat> buffer time. Buffer like, time. It's like plus three minutes. Exactly. Right. So, so there's first of all there's that bit. Then there's the the just simple saying hello. Then there's the oh hang on I've forgotten and oh hang on let me just get oh I've left this in the car. Yeah. So you, once you've got all that and that's with a group checking pressures if we're on mountain bikes or whatever, it's amazing how quickly that can add up. If you're doing, oh, if that's a Sunday morning, yeah. then everyone says, "Oh, sorry, we'll just do one lap, or we'll go for a coffee, or we'll go to the pub." 
when you're doing end to end, those small incremental faff times, yeah, yeah, just must make just must put you behind schedule, and then there's the mental. Well, pressure. it can do because I was doing a lot of stops as well. Because um, so a rider like um, I think Ian was saying he'd he'd um, mimicked. Um, Sorry, Mark. Uh, Mark Bowles <laughs> schedule for the world, and uh, so the four-hour blocks. I know Mark would do, you know, ride for four hours, solid on the bike, and then stop, and then have a have a break, and then four hours solid and stop. And on the penny farthing, I can only do that for about two hours, and it's just so uncomfortable. Because on a penny farthing, you can't get out of the saddle when you're riding. Yeah. You just can't do it. So I was, I planned right from the start, stop every hour, five minute stop, eat, get back on the bike. Another hour, and also it's an hour to chunk. You know, if you get if it's getting hard, I knew it was going to be really, really tough, and it was. It's the yeah. toughest thing I've ever done on a bike. An hour's okay. I can do an hour. I can do an hour. Yeah. I can do an hour. Yeah. It's because you, you mentioned earlier that you also it's not just your legs that you're using. You have to use your whole upper body as well, right? To keep stability. Yeah, that's right. So when you're riding the bike, because um, the the pedals are linked to the steerage. When you push on the pedal, yeah, and I push on the pedals quite hard. It pushes the handlebars around, so you have to counter with your arms. You have to pull those back against that force. So it's, it's like an all-over body workout when you get riding hard up big hills. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, really physical yeah. thing to ride. It's not just pushing some pedals around. It's, yeah, your whole body's body's uh, working with this thing. So it's really tough. So yeah, I needed, I needed to schedule those hour breaks, and we set down to write the schedule in the end. And um, Roger from Unicycle.com holds the end-to-end -end record on the unicycle. Stag oh staggering, <laughs> mind-bending, isn't it? <laughs> Penny Farley's bad enough for unicycle. I can't comprehend it. I can't ride one at all. Can't do two pedal strokes on one. Roger holds his record six and a half days end to end, and that's the closest thing to what I was about to attempt that, that anybody's done. You know, in terms of writing schedule. So he uh, he popped round, bless him. It's quite a long drive from where he lives up north, and he came down. I'm going to spend the afternoon. We'll look at your schedule. And we'll compare with what I did with what you're planning on doing. And, uh, and he spent an afternoon going through the schedule with me and we kind of blocked it out. Great piece of help, really, really um, useful to know that he'd think, because he rides up any five well now on racism, and uh, uh, he sat down and worked through a schedule with me of what I was planning, and he said, yeah, that, that's going to work, that can happen. When you're on the bike, you talked uh, a couple of times about mental preparation. Yes. Which, it sounds like you really put a lot of effort into that mental preparation. Yeah, we did. Just I say we, because it's not just me, it's the crew as well. Yeah. Because I was quite worried about how they were going to respond to five days of extreme pressure and exhaustion. And they're not professionals like me. They're just average Joes, you know, they're friends of mine. And we yeah. sat down for the first crew meeting and uh, goodness knows why all these folks stepped up and said, yeah, we'll come put life on hold or, you know, take some holiday and come and follow you the full length of the country. And, you know, yeah. So I said, no idea, why did they do that? But bless them, they did. And uh, they're married couples, you know, and put yourself in that position as a married couple and you're, you're close proximity in a vehicle for five days and you're tired and things might not be going right. Uh, you know, it's, it's a recipe for falling out, isn't it? A real big bust up, you know. Could be awful, couldn't it? And I've heard stories of support crews going really, really wrong, you know. Yeah. Chris Hopkinson, a big training pal of mine, real inspiration, who was the first Brit to ride a race across America. And he went to ride a race across America. Had a fall out with his crew chief halfway across the States and the crew chief just walked off. I'm going home, see ya. Yeah. You know, it happens. So you've got, to, you've got to prepare for the things that can upset. So we were going belt and braces with everything, not just not just the bike, not just the technical stuff, not just the route planning. So I wanted to make sure the crew were understanding it and that they were safe and that they were prepared for that level of, of tiredness because it's tough, it's really tough. And it could have gone very wrong for me, you know, and yeah. they've got to be ready for that as well, for it all going pear-shaped. Just thinking outside of cycling, I just, yeah. just have to say, I think that's fantastic leadership. If you've got a team that are doing something for you and you're thinking not just about them supporting you, but them 
their well-being and them going through it. I just think that's absolutely fantastic leadership of the team. That's just, it's purely selfish. I wanted to break this record. Also, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're it's... looking after me. I'm not joking. Seriously, if you want, you know, if you want to break a record, you've got to. It doesn't just happen. It's not. It's not like a fluke thing. It's not. You know, we were so analytical about this. In fact, it's it's, it's, kind, of, it's, it's, weird. it's kind of detrimental in the end. You know, you get to the end of doing something great, and you like you see like a, a sprint across the line Olympics and their arms are around, yeah, and triumph, you know. When you've prepared so much and you think everything's catered for and, you, and, and it goes to plan and you get to the end and think, oh, that went to plan. <laughs> that's fantastic. And that's done. Yeah, but, but <laughs> so it's like, it negates that kind of big emotional, yeah. And, we, and, and I watched a video of, of Broadwith when he got, I mean, part of it's exhaustion as well. Yeah. Broadwith got to the end of breaking his record and you see him get to John O'Groats and the crew were like standing around like, oh, okay, what, what, what now? Yes, <laughs> yes. So yeah, we're done. What, what what? We... And there's no big kind of, you know, there's, there's, no, no, there's no big fanfare, there's no podium, there's no, you know, it's just, it just stops rather abruptly. And it's kind of, it's embarrassing, frankly. And I, and I got to the end and, um, and I feel kind of, kind of bad about it for the crew in hindsight, but I was just shattered. I've never been so mm. mentally, physically drained. Yeah. And I was seeing double, riding down the road to John Groves, I was literally seeing double. And the crew luckily put placed themselves out down to the to finish post because it was hidden behind coaches, park coaches, and like didn't quite know where I was going. So they guided me through the post, and I got to the end and yeah, touched the touched the posts and checked the Garmin that somebody registered mileage. What again? Uh, and that's it. There's no triumphant thing. And, and in hindsight, I was thinking, yeah, I should have turned around and done that big celebratory thing for everybody. But yeah. I was just gone, just completely empty. Um, when we talk about Michael Broadworth, he's the guy basically breaking the same record but on a normal bike. Yes. Basically. And um, I went to a talk of him and mm. he highlighted this one point where he basically said, okay, I'm done, I can't, I, I, I want yes. to stop now. Yeah. How long did it take for you until this point was reached where he said, like, I want to stop, I, I can't keep on going? But Do you know, we, we, overcame it. I, there was a, he did a, a great podcast interview which uh, I listened to and I said to my wife, you need to listen to this. Really good interview. There's a lot of information here. We can learn from this. This is quite early on in the prep for this thing. We don't just kind of decide we're going to do it. So we're going to bed. And we sat down in bed. It's like my listeners podcast. Neither of us slept a wink that night. I don't think because we're both so worried yeah. about it. Yeah. Just <laughs> terrified. <laughs> terrified. And just you're right. And you listen to this. <laughs> you listen to what it can reduce you to to the point where you. Yeah. Yeah. He's quite capable of breaking this record. You know, it's mm. there right in front of him. You know, it's going to happen. And his brain just says no. No. So we, we got involved with a company called Chimp Management, Professor Steve Peters, who oh. worked with British Cycling. A lot of the, I read his book, yeah. uh, The Chimp Paradox. That's right, it's yeah. Really, good really interesting stuff. So basically, they look at how your brain works in different parts of your brain and how they conflict with each other. And there's that kind of fight and flight response thing when things are going wrong, or you're feeling under attack, and that kind of instant snap judgment about what you're going to do. Yeah. And more often than not, it's, it's like the wrong thing to do, but <laughs> as soon as it's kicked in, that's it, it's active and yeah. it's happening. And so Tim Buckle, who I originally met as a coach with youth riders for British Cycling, really inspiring guy, now works with Steve Peters. So he came and, uh, and got involved, bless him, and he worked with me, but he also worked with the crew to put them to a sort of position of understanding this whole notion of a kind of like programming your brain, thinking about what's going to happen, what the worst scenario outcomes are, and pre-prepare yourself for that, and how you can work with this chimp, this angry part of your brain, and kind of use that power, kind of harness that power yeah. to, to the good, to make it better for you. What was the point when it, you had to consciously start thinking, oh, I've got to get some of this to kick in? Uh, or even... Same point, I mentioned, the, 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 the bit I mentioned earlier on, halfway through, 
And we got yeah. up on day three, and I was talking to Chris, the cameraman. We had a film crew with us. A lovely, really inspiring set of guys, Forces and Collective, who were down at Dolly Dale, just down the lane. Um, kind of got involved to make a documentary film of this. Off their own back, they found funny to do it, and uh, they became part of the crew, and they got really involved. And we got up on day three, and Chris, the cameraman, said, so it's day three, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's day three. And we looked at each other, yeah, this is the tough one. Right. Because you, you've already done two days riding, you start to get really knackered, the crew are getting knackered, or you get into a pattern, but it's tiring. But you still got, at the start of day three, you still got three yeah. days to go in five days. It's a big thing to get over. So this is going to be the hard one. So I got into, started to get into day three, and we rode up through uh, Kendall and up Shap, and that's, that's a toughie, you know, riding up Shap on a penny farthing, when it's blowing a gale. <laughs> the weather was awful, it was awful. Yeah. Uh, so we got through, and then uh, and I started halfway through day three, I was thinking, Chris, I thought we said this was going to be the hard day. This is going great, this is going great. And then all of a sudden it just fell to pieces in my head. It's really weird, we predicted it. I didn't think it was going to happen, it still happens to you. And I yeah. said, this, this awful road up in Scotland, and I was just fighting so hard. But then I was talking to myself, well, you knew it was going to be hard. You knew you were going to get saddle sores. You knew it was going to be uncomfortable. You've talked to your chimp about it already. It's not going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> you knew it was going to happen. Let's just crack on. So we did. Put some good tunes on the headphones. Yeah. Got on with it. It hurt. But I got you to the end of the day, you know, just kept the pace up. Because you prepped, because you planned, yeah. because you mentally challenged, you know, gone through these sorts of scenarios, how are you going to handle these things? Because you're aware of it, yeah. uh, that's brilliant. But the whole team managed to still stick together despite something that could have made the whole thing fall apart. Yeah, yeah. That's excellent. And that's just one example. I mean, no doubt there was all sorts of stuff happening that I didn't know yeah. about. And I could see how tough it was because my wife was organising the crew and, and I know her very well. And I can, when you stunt for five minutes and, and I could see the way she was responding to people or looking at her eyes, you know, this is actually really tough for these guys. This is not, not an easy thing to do. And I've watched video footage since and I've watched, <laughs> I've watched the reaction of one of the crew who just got up, uh, like quarter past five in the morning, they fed me and I've just rolled off down the road and I look at her expressions of the camera, so tired, it's like I roll the eyes and think, that was, that was really hard stuff to do yeah. for them. You love running, riding a, a penny farthing. Yeah. On that adventure, what was the point when you were thinking to yourself, this is awesome. This is amazing. This is brilliant. This bit of this, this ride is amazing. First mile. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> After the first you know, mile, it was like oh. I, had a, I had a really big confidence crisis about a fortnight before we, before we set off. Really? It was a massive. I was saying Mel Nichols was um, having to go to the hand crank female record. And she went through a really similar kind of psychological trajectory. I mean, we talked quite a lot with each other in her build-up and mine. And we're chatting afterwards and she went through a similar thing. But anyway, she, she'd set off on her attempt and she was halfway up the country and she was coming up kind of near us and I wanted to, to ride out and, and meet her and go and cheer on outside the road. And the night before I'd been lying in bed thinking about the number of people involved in my attempt who'd given up their time and kind of um, knowledge and professionalism and I started counting people who were directly involved in my... I shouldn't have done it. I started counting all these people who were directly involved and uh, uh, sponsors involved and money's involved. And, and when I got to kind of over 40 people who were directly involved, I suddenly started to panic and think, I don't, I, I don't actually know if I can do this. <laughs> I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Can I achieve this or not? I've no idea. They all think I can, clearly. They've got confidence, yeah. but I've not got the confidence in myself. And I kind of went to pieces. I woke up the next morning, I'd planned to go out the door and ride over a cat and fiddle and meet Nell and Mel. And I couldn't get out of bed. And I couldn't open the curtains and I couldn't open the front door. I was just suddenly frozen. terrified. Yeah, really frozen. And that was a chimp again. Yeah, it was, absolutely, that was a chimp. And that was the, the, the panic, the chimp panicking, thinking this is gonna go wrong, this is gonna hurt you. It's like psychologically hurt you, you know, yeah. it's gonna upset a lot of people and I'm yeah. responsible for all this that's been put in and it's gonna go wrong. 
it's going to go badly wrong, you know, and they'll all hate you. And of course, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And I spoke to the sponsor, brilliant sponsor, uh, Harriet. Uh, from Keystone Financial, who, who sponsored the whole thing for no reason other than she thought it was a great inspirational thing to do. She's no benefit to her business because it doesn't really in any way at all. So she yeah. just thought, brilliant inspirational thing to do, go and do it. And I phoned her up a little while later and I'm having this really big confidence crisis because she said, how's it going? Said, not going very well at all, yeah. actually. And she said, well, look, don't worry. And you can't get a better sponsor. She said, don't worry. She said, get to the start line, having done everything you could possibly do, get to the start line, is that first pedal stroke and for me that's job done doesn't matter how far you get and that's, that's great fantastic. that's fantastic yeah. you know because sponsors could put so much pressure on you to achieve yeah. so much for them mm. said, no just get to start line pedal stroke done. so genuinely that first mile after all the prep for nine months all the training all the people involved first mile the sun was just coming up bit of a tailwind you know oh, it's better for a ride a great big ride in front of me just brilliant first mile and I went to pieces <laughs> <laughs> I did I, I just all this pressure, all this stuff building up for nine months, and it's like really controlled process, really analytical, you know, and everything's in place. And the first mile, and then I just just kind of let go, you know, yeah. that kind of emotion. And I was like, I was just blubbing away on the bike. I just, just went to pieces. Emotion. I was just sobbing my heart out. But thank you for sharing that. That's all right. Because I, th- I think that is fascinating that we always think of the athlete as being the one that is, you know, when you're going to hit the, the low point is like in the middle of yeah. the thing yeah. or if you don't achieve the goal or whatever it, is, whatever it is. But you forget about the weight you're carrying because you're in this position of leadership for all these people who are supporting you and part of your team. Yeah. And you're in that position and yet ultimately it comes down to you. It, it does, totally. I'm sure there are other people out there who have done these sorts of events who will listen to this and think, I'm glad he said that because I felt exactly like that in my last week. Or there's perhaps somebody about to att- attempt a big event and he's perhaps in that same mm-hmm. place as you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a great release. It was a really good moment. I was, I kind of genuinely enjoyed sobbing my heart out. It was... Yeah, you feel <laughs> it was a real release, yeah. Because I had been like so much pressure for so long. Yeah. Um, and I say it just taken over life completely outside of work. Every conversation we had over the dinner table, in the car, on holiday, it was all about that. Yeah. Just totally focused. You described earlier about what it was like to come to the finish. In that moment, I can imagine you are knackered that the whole team's, you know, tired. Yes. It's not the moment of celebration. How long did it take before you'd kind of recovered enough, either physically or mentally, to sit there and have that satisfied cheer or fist pump or high five with someone to feel like... Should we do it now? I'm not, I'm not done it yet. Should we do it now? Let's <laughs> a high five right now. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> On the, on the penny farthing it would be a low five, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd have to leech down to it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, riders come past you and they say, on your right, on your left, like particularly in cyclocross. Yeah. A rider came up behind me recently and said, oh, I'm not sure what to shout. Can I shout coming underneath? <laughs> <laughs> well, we thought about you riding into the finish of something. You know how, like, riding into the finish, put your hand out and you high-five people on the way in? Yeah. But I think you can't do that on a penny farthing. You can <laughs> just, you just take yeah. their fingers off with a wheel or you can slap them on the side of the head as you go past it. Yeah, yeah, we tried it, it's not easy. But no, seriously, the, the moment, I think probably the, the moment of realisation for me was a bit like a mile after start, being reduced to a yeah. blubbering mess <laughs> on a bike, you know. Got up the next morning, got into this routine of getting up quarter past five, brain was wide awake quarter past five, automatic, no alarm set, up out of the van. And because uh, I was doing this to raise money for children in need, big children in need, I got a little pudgy bear with me. Pudgy came all the way, sat on a Garmin mount on the front of the bike on the handlebars. Oh, <laughs> so Pudgy got a kind of ringside seat at the whole thing and seen it all. 
talked to Puddy quite a lot on route. So I got next morning and uh, me and Puddy went for a walk down to the harbour. The sun was just coming up over the sea and John O'Groats, and it's quite an exposed place, you know, it can be quite yeah. grim. Yeah. Just glorious weather for a couple of days up there. It's fabulous. So we got up next morning, we down, walked down to the harbour together and the sun was coming up. And again, I just had a good old cry to myself. And I was kind of, right, this, that's done now. Uh, kind of, yeah, some of that sense of, of satisfaction and uh, kind of emotion washed over again. It's, uh, it's amazing what you've done. And, and it's amazing how you, you, you've managed yourself and done that. I could just imagine there's somebody up there who's just walking their dog and you're stood there with Potsy. Yeah. Someone's walking their dog and you're stood in your normal clothes. And it must be one of those weird things where they just see you as another person stood there. And actually, you almost want to say to them, I've just done that into John O'Groats. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> there there's nothing. Once, once you're off the um, penny farthing and you're back into your own clothes, mm. it's, it's not like there's a badge. You, no. didn't, you didn't get a medal. No. You didn't get like the, the, the big fanfare or anything like that. And uh, it, it's, it's quite a big come down, I imagine, from doing the event to that day after, the day after that. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, it was quite a big come down. We, we, we planned to spend a bit of time up in Scotland with, yeah. with one of the, the camper vans uh, from the crew and uh, do a bit of sightseeing. But we were so tired and there was that emotional come down as well. Mm. The big anticlimax and. Just a kind of hollow feeling, you know. The, the rest of the crew had a, a day there and kind of gradually disappeared off, and uh, we left us just feeling kind of so tired that we, we we popped in to see some a friend down at Loch Tay and tried to have a bit of a ride on the, the penny because uh, Dawn wanted to go out for a ride because she'd been sat in the van for five days, you know. So we tried to have a, a ride on the lock, and I just couldn't. I just couldn't ride the bike <laughs> physically. <laughs> it's weird. You can you can ride, and I found this with twenty four hour racing. You can ride for twenty four hours. You can race absolutely flat out, full gas. And you cross the finish line 24 hours and you stop. And I remember once I finished halfway around the finish circuit from the HQ. And uh, somebody from Darwin Mercury that I knew with his wife. And he said, oh, do you want to lift back to the HQ? And I said, no, I'm fine, all right. Longest six miles a mile. <laughs> all of a sudden your brain goes from like full tilt, you can do this to now. So nothing, there. stop. It, yeah. Nothing there, nothing at all. And it's like that. So yeah, there's a big kind of empty feeling. We just kind of uh, yeah. drifted home gradually over <laughs> three or four days. Just, yeah. I think that's, that's what, uh, what Ben mentioned when he finished cycling the whole bit of the Tour de France like he only prepared until that day and he finished and he was like you know what so, yeah, so. yeah I think it's a big it's a common thing for athletes isn't it and I've heard people talk about this with with big events like athletics or mm. you know, cycling world cups mm. you go to this big events and you're, you're hugely in this environment of uh, excitement and support teams and attention and focus and interviews and cameras and, and you go away from it and you go back to your kind of very lonely yeah, training right. existence and it's a big downer for a lot of athletes it's a really hard thing there's probably not enough support work put into that that should be really. yeah uh, i've experienced that. i work with um, with para athletes with the uk school games with with young athletes um and i became aware of it there when when they go away from that kind of big supportive exciting yeah. environment and and go back home and be a, a disabled disabled athlete in isolation from what those kind of friends you've made is yeah. actually quite a tough thing to do great to do the events but you go yeah. away from them and it's, uh, it's almost a, a negative produced by the positive thing so uh, yeah. curious just a quick intervention uh, intervention um, we have recorded one hour and a half okay. oh wow so oh, we just so conscious about time because we have to cut a little bit to get like more like two minutes yeah, yeah good that's a toilet break oh, well, that's well, good. do you want a quick toilet yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah do you want to pause it and then do, do, yeah. record it, do like another recording yeah. Yeah, I was going to say if people want to get into pain farthings yeah, pain farthing racing. What can they do? Okay, so there's a couple of things you could do. One is um, 
if you go on the wonderful world of Facebook, there's a group, as I've mentioned, called the League of Ordinary Riders, uh, and that links up riders all around the world. Now, almost all these riders are so enthusiastic. If you get in touch and say, can I have a go? Can you teach me to ride? They'll run around to your house and they'll show you. <laughs> you know, they will. They will. They love kind of sharing it. They can't help it. So, you know, you can get in touch with folks on, on the Facebook group and find out if anybody near you has got a penny farthing. And I'm sure if they can, they'll teach you. But the next best event to go and see penny farthing racing full scale in this country is, is coming up just next year. The, the event that happens every 10 years, the Great Race in Nutsford in Cheshire and I can't remember the exact date but it's uh, middle of September next year and there'll be riders from all over the world they'll shut the roads down in, in the town centre proper criterion racing 100 plus riders battling out in a three hour endurance race it's just such a spectacle having had a small go on it and seeing some of the pictures that you shared with people racing I would love to see a bunch of penny farthings coming around on a, on a criterion race. It's going to be a fantastic spectacle. It's like nothing and else. once every 10 years, yeah. if anyone is listening to this and even in any doubt, you're going to have to go. Absolutely. Get, you, if you miss it, that's it. It's gone. September 2020. You've mentioned a number of times your crew, your support, your sponsors. There's so many people I can imagine that you want to thank. Yeah. Are there any uh, particular ones that you just want to mention? And I know you were doing this for charity as well that you want to mention. This is why I take a deep breath. Start to just get my toilet roll list of names. Now I said before this confidence crisis when I started yeah. to count the number of people directly involved and I start thanking individual people. I kind of feel guilty because there were so many. It's really really difficult. But you know, uh, got to, obviously got to say thank you to my wife to start with, who for a period of nine months allowed me to be, become totally obsessed by this thing and genuinely didn't moan once about anything. You know, yeah. Just just supporting me going out. Training and riding, just doing the cooking and cleaning, the shopping and everything else. Yeah, so and worrying and and worrying enormously. Thank you, Dawn, and equally my daughter, who's also a major part of the crew, uh, and uh, also supporting me through all this. Harriet, sponsor from Keystone Financial, because that took a, a huge weight off us financial pressure. Fantastic support crew, wonderful friends who who uh, who came and looked after me. Uh, Roger from Unicycle.com who supplied a spare bike, parts, fantastic advice and time coming to uh, to advise me. Standard High Wheels from Sweden for supplying me the rubber to burn up on the roads. <laughs> Ruth from Belper Life Fitness who is a physio and Pilates instructor and I've not mentioned this earlier but I'm pretty I'm pretty typical cyclist. Decent legs but you know upper half, you know, pathetic, pathetic. Um, so yeah and uh, Phil Clark from Derby University, sports psychologist who gave his time for nothing again, helping to get my, my head straight over this. Tim Buckle from Chimp Management. Uh, and a list of many, many other people who've given me a lot of advice and support along the way. i tell you what, what we will do is we will get the full list of people for, for you. Oh, we can we will, do that? Because it is enormous. And we will put it, we'll put it on our blog post so yeah. that we can yeah. get the full list yeah. up. So There's a lovely, enthusiastic bunch of folks um, at Four Season Collective who live just down the road from us who um, are making a documentary film of this, which will be out in a little while. Two of them came along for the, the full thing and integrated into the crew, and they did far more than be a film crew from before we started the, the attempt. They were really involved and uh, put some uh, some real good enthusiasm and energy into it from a different direction, so that was, that was really, really brilliant. Will it be online or...? The film? Yeah. I guess it will be eventually. Um, I think they're aiming at the kind of outdoor uh, adventure film festival circuit, and... Uh, 
I'll, I'll be using it in some talks that I'll be doing at local clubs and, and what have you. If, if you see it online somewhere, we, we, you can put the link online to our yes. Twitter account or to our Instagram. So if you listen to this, you won't see it obviously tomorrow, but uh, the moment it is out, it will be online somewhere. And also, um, we took some photos earlier when, we, when Mike and I had to go on the penny farthing. So we would write a little blog post about it and we add this list that Mike just mentioned about with, with all the people that you, you want to thank. Smashing. Absolutely. Richard, I can, this has been the most brilliant day for me. I got to ride on a penny farthing. I got to laugh at <laughs> Neil's not riding on a penny farthing. I did. You did. You did. Sorry, I got to laugh at the fear of Neil's riding on a penny farthing. And I've, it's been the most inspirational chat having a chat with you today. Uh, Brilliant, thank you. It's been so nice to meet you both. I've been listening to you on the podcast. Oh, one last massive thank you. And for everybody out there, as soon as we get more updates from Richard, whether it's on Children in Need, whether it's the video the film coming out, we will post it all to make sure you can all keep up with it. And I would encourage anybody to have a go on a penny farthing. Thanks very much, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Richard, I have one more question. I asked my seven-year-old daughter, what question would she ask somebody who rides a penny farthing? And she stopped and she thought, and her question was, can you do a wheelie? And the answer is, yes, I can. But if I do, it's going to go really, really wrong very quickly. <laughs> <laughs>